Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Derrick. Ben, I don't usually make an opening statement, but I'm uh, pleased to say that we're finally doing this pair, possibly the greatest twin movies ever. Hi. Wow. Okay, you've totally loaded up this podcast. I can't even remember what other movies we've done before this point, but they're all garbage. They're all garbage. There are approximately 26 or 27 other episodes, but you think that this combination of Blade versus John Carpenter's Vampires is the one you've waited for. It is. Those 54 or 52 other movies are all shit. Fuck them. Wow. Get them out of here. Get them out of here. Make way for Blade and Vampires. Well, ordinarily then, what I would say is that every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea, movies that aren't necessarily just Blade and just Vampires. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? (laughs) Big mistake. (laughs) Today we'll be reviewing two classic horror action movies about a vampire hunter who becomes the hunted when he becomes a sacrifice and a ritual to allow vampires to walk in sunlight and become invulnerable. It's Blade versus John Carpenter's Vampires. Let the fangs come out. So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 21st of August, 1998, Blade was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A half-vampire, half-mortal man becomes a protector of the mortal race while slaying evil vampires. Now, Gabe, every week I ask you when you saw a movie uh, and what, what that experience was like for you. This was released at the cinema. I'm sure you were there within the first week. Walk me through your first experience watching Blade. I did see this at the movies and let me tell you what a thrilling experience it was. Uh, 1998, how old would I have been then? I don't know, 15 or 16 years old. So it it, it really felt like it was a movie made for dumb 15-year-old me and also still just as stupid 30-year-old me. Uh, so I saw it with my dad and... Ah, you know, the, the the buzz at school the following Monday, it was just electric. It was just electric for Blade. It was just an amazing experience. I can't I can't speak highly enough of how you know when the uh blood rave happened. Uh I just I just lost my mind. I just lost my mind. It was really great. I, I'm almost a lost for words to to describe the euphoric transcendental experience uh, that was watching Blade. In 1998. All right, okay. Keep your powder dry for the actual review. Now, what's interesting about this, and I've been waiting a long time for this, is Mr. Gabriel Dowrick reflecting on seeing a movie with his dad. Because when we first met, I'm pretty sure two out of three movies you described that you'd seen in the past were with your dad. But your dad seems to have not had a radar for the twin movies idea in that I can't recall in a recent podcast episode you describing having seen a twin movie with your dad. So what does that mean? Are twin movies the garlic to your dad? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I saw a lot of movies, uh, I guess, let's say in the 1990s uh, to maybe the early 2000s with my pa. And then, you know, as as young men grow older, they look to fight their fathers. So that all ended. Uh, when I challenged him to an ill-fated uh, round of pugilism that Christmas day in 2004. 
Um, <laughs> but um, no, I used to go to a lot of movies with my dad every Sunday. And, you know, we'd just go and see any old action film, no matter how, you know, uh, good or bad, I guess. I remember being like the only, we're like the only two people watching Escape from LA in some shitty cinema and fuck, it was awesome. Anyway, so like if we do movies, if we do twin movies that were made between, you know, 1995 and 2002, there's a fair chance that I saw it with my dad. Well, the, th- the thing is, is that so many of the movies we've seen were in that window. And I know that because I describe having gone to see it when I was working at that art house cinema and getting to see free movies at the multiplex. But just by coincidence, we haven't actually hit one on the head that you saw with your dad. Huh. But what I must say is what's very important for a young teenage boy is in spending quality time to share his emotions and discuss his dreams, ambitions, hopes and fears with his father. He goes to a dark space for two hours, <laughs> sits side by side and doesn't exchange a word. Yeah, it's perfect. Quality time. It's perfect. Quality time. I don't. I, I know you're saying that while laughing and stuff, but it- it worked. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it. <laughs> so I saw Blade in 98. Uh, to long-term listeners of the podcast, yes, that's right. It was that window of time, that glorious window of time when Ben Phelps here got to see free movies, unlimited flicks, and I escaped to my local multiplex and saw Blade with a couple of mates. Got to say, wasn't impressed. <sighs> Didn't like it. Was a bit bored. However, I am now going to do a Roger Ebert style re-review on my rewatch of this movie and give it significantly more stars and praise than I did the first time round. But wow, for the record, for the record, at the time, so this is me. I'm in my second year of doing film theory. I'm into my European movies. I'm into my indie American cinema. And I actually did love my Nick Cage action films of those late 90s and so on. So it wasn't like I was against those films, but this film just bugged me at the time. Um, I think I found it too pretentious and I think I found Stephen Dorff what? just chewing too much scenery. No. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But that's just my first impression at the time. I wasn't thrilled. Okay. But what you're saying is that in, in, in 1998, you're all about um, uh, John Waters' Pecker, Velvet Goldmine, The Last Days of Disco. Yeah, totally. High art. They're all the films that we actually screened our art house cinema. I think, I think at the start of that run was probably Swingers, you know, the John Favreau, right. Vince Vaughn movie as well. But all those films you named, High Art. Sure. Last of Disco, The Big Lebowski. Sure. Like all those movies came out that window of time. Blade's all right, but uh, it's got nothing on Hideous Kinky. <laughs> That's right, Hideous Kinky. They're all the classics. Yeah, sure. But I must say that maybe Blade was ready for the world, but I wasn't ready for Blade. Wait, wait. So you aged into liking Blade. <laughs> I know. I aged into the tastes of a 14-year-old boy. That's right. Well, <laughs> well. All right. Let's jump to John Carpenter's Vampires, which was released on the 30th of October, 1998. Here's its synopsis from IMDb. Recovering from an ambush that killed his entire team, a vengeful vampire slayer must retrieve an ancient Catholic relic that, should it be acquired by vampires, will allow them to walk in sunlight. All right, Gabe, here we are. We're at a John Carpenter film. 
It's 1998. You've seen Blade only two months prior to this. This is John Carpenter film, the guy behind Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, The Thing. I am guessing that you must have been pumped for this. When and how did you first watch John Carpenter's Vampires? I do appreciate, by the way, Ben, that you're calling it John Carpenter's Vampires, the whole title. That will actually fall away very shortly, but I thought just for the meantime, I'd sort of give it the DVD or poster title that it has because I feel that was a way they were trying to market it to A, separate it from just the generic word of vampires. When I mentioned to my partner this morning I was watching Vampires, I had to explain that was actually the title of the film because it almost sounds so generic. And I assume they were trying to basically say, no, no, this is by a horror legend, John Carpenter. And also, just so you don't confuse it with other films called Vampires, it's this one in 1998. Fair. Well, you'd be surprised to know that I didn't actually see this at the cinema. Whoa! That's right. I'm, I'm Whoa! Not, I don't really know why. Um, it may well have been that something else came out that same weekend and I saw that instead. I'm not entirely sure. But maybe you'd seen Blade only two months beforehand and you thought, well, I think this has just stepped on the whole premise of John Carpenter's Vampires. We're done. We're done here. What do you mean? No, I'd seen Dust Till Dawn every weekend for two years before this. I had no, I had no, my, my enthusiasm for the, uh, you know, vampire action genre will forever remain unabated. But it would actually be an immortal desire, would you say? Oh, uh, well, maybe not so sensual, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, nonetheless, I didn't see this at the movies, but fuck, me me and my friends, my high school buddies, we must have watched this movie just, just a bunch. Do you remember that sort of era, you know, VHS, where you could kind of re-watch movies endlessly? Um, uh, like Evil Dead 2, you know, I've talked a bunch about how much I love Evil Dead 2 and you can rewatch that in endlessly, you know, particularly because it's only 80 minutes long or whatever. But, you know, Blade, like I said, Dust Till Dawn, Evil Dead 2, Vampires, we just chuck these on all the time, all the time. So I saw it a lot like that. It's funny you'd say that because this came out in 1998 and that was at the start of the big DVD releases I think DVD was probably officially launched around 96, 97, but actually it took around till 98, didn't it? Well, and maybe my dates are off here, but we did have DVD in 98, didn't we? Or not? Blade 2 was the first movie I bought on DVD um, when it came out, but I think I was playing DVDs off like my PlayStation 2 or something that I had. So even if DVDs had come out, then I'd also bought so many VHS movies that I was still watching uh, films on tape, you know, till, I don't know, 2004 probably before I finally turfed them out and had a reasonably good DVD collection instead. Well, the thing about VHS was that you couldn't jump to a scene as easily. So I suppose you're probably more inclined to watch it through in a linear way, whereas now... If you want, you can just get, say, the Heat DVD and rather than watch a three-hour movie, just jump to the heist at the end or a particular scene and just cherish that scene. But back then, you'd tend to probably commit to watching it the whole way through or you pick up where you left off last time, don't you think? <laughs> maybe, maybe, 
I guess so. Commit to watching it the whole way through. Well, I'm committed. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing's going to stop me now. Well, I didn't see this movie myself at the cinema. In fact, I only saw it last night in preparation for the pod. So, like I mentioned last time, I'm actually glad to do this podcast because it's encouraging me slash forcing me to watch plenty of movies that I've always been curious about, but just they somehow slipped by. And I could never quite justify watching them again because I felt the moment had gone in time. The cool thing about doing these Twin Movies podcast episodes is that I get to watch that particular movie, but also then juxtapose it with the other Twin Movie in the same year. And often I wouldn't see the second movie because I guess I thought, you know, the first movie had blown its wad and that was like it spoilt the premise. So I recall seeing this poster everywhere. I've got a really good memory for posters and having seen them in particular places and recognising a bus shelter or a bus or um, a sign outside a cinema and just sort of being struck by particularly iconic images. And vampires, I recall, because it has, we'll get to the poster design, but it, it had quite an epic-looking poster in terms of the colour combination and the assembly of this team of vampire hunters, which quickly get knocked off early in the film. But... They felt It felt to be both of its time with its 90s aesthetic, but also a bit of a throwback to 80s and 70s films, which is no surprise because it's John Carpenter. And so for some reason, it always stuck with me. I think as well, I'd always been intrigued by the crossbow <laughs> and total evidence as to audiences' obsession with the coolness of a crossbow is how much they love the use of the crossbow in the zombie TV series The Walking Dead. Like, you'd agree, right, that there's something about a crossbow that's really cool that I guess is the closest we have to steampunk tech. And we discussed this in our review of Van Helsing in that it's both a gun but also a Robin Hood-style horizontal bow and arrow. There's something cool about it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I never I never thought about the Robin Hood bit or the steampunk. It's just a cool weapon. It's just a cool weapon, you know? Yeah, that, that's why it's cool. I think it's both retro but also contemporary. It has a trigger. You hold it like a gun, mm. but it has that kind of throwback to, you know, a bow and arrow. And we've all seen bow and arrows back in the day through our Robin Hood films, including that very cute animated one with a fox, for example. Mm. Anywho, <laughs> let's move on to our review of these movies. But before we do... I'd be remiss not to jump into a quick little history lesson, a shallow dive, not a deep dive, a shallow dive into the Hollywood history behind these two flicks. So Blade is an interesting one. Blade uh, is a film based on a comic book series by Marvel of the same name. Marvel Studios had actually developed the film as early as 1992, and back then, rapper-actor LL Cool J was interested in playing the lead role. And so it was set up at New Line Cinema with David Goy writing the script. And originally, this is fascinating, New Line originally wanted to do Blade as like a spoof before it was Goy who convinced them to actually take it seriously and do it more like a horror action movie. And it was only then after a Black Panther adaptation didn't get into production that in 1996, Wesley Snipes signed on to star as Blade. Wow. So Was that news to you, Gabe? I, I think I'd heard that 
or some version of that story. I mean, definitely the Black Panther part that Wesley Snipes was trying to get that happening. I hadn't heard that it was going to be a comedy or a, I mean, spoofing what? Like, Well, I guess this is back in the day where Marvel had a lack of success with doing any of their adaptations at all. We'd had, I guess, had the Superman sequels come out prior to this, which hadn't been received very well. Um, in many respects, this film is actually the beginning of a serious approach to comic adaptations. Uh, people talk about the X-Men films being the first plank, but actually it's I think it's Blade. Yeah, fuck those X-Men movies. <laughs> um, and this basically starts the whole journey for 10 years before Disney acquires Marvel and then Marvel explodes and builds that 22 film plus you know, uh, phase one to phase three, you know, $23 billion franchise. But it all started, I think, with Blade, it's fair to say. I mean, this film was a big step up from, was it Real Steel? The film with, I think it was Shaquille O'Neal, right? Well, I mean, in what, like 1994 or 93 or something, like there was that terrible Damon Wayne's superhero parody comedy called Blank Man, you know. I mean, maybe they were going to try and do it in the vein of something like that. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, when they tried a serious adaptation of The Punisher, that didn't go well either. So perhaps it was a case of actually reacting to the failure of comic book adaptations and thinking, oh, the audience isn't ready for a serious portrayal of these characters and blaming the serious portrayal opposed to actually just blaming the films being bad. And hence they were perhaps skewing to the comedy version instead thinking that was a solution to chase the audience. Yeah. It's hard to know. I think this was also that window of time where films started influencing backwards comics. So the original source of inspiration for the story is adapted into a film and then the comic book writers and artists actually then started drawing the characters to resemble the actors and taking the modern updated storylines into the comics. Because back in 73 when Blade was created for Marvel by writers Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. And by the way, the fact that the writers called Marv Wolfman, I just love, like, you can't make that up. <laughs> I mean, maybe he did. Well, the fact that he's called Marv, which sounds like Marvel, and his surname is Wolfman, I mean, that can't be his real name, right? <laughs> Marv Wolfman, fake name. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Anyway, they created Blade as a supporting character in the 1970s comic the Tomb of Dracula, and back then he used teakwood knives and was more of an everyday person in his behaviour and attitude. So he was courageous and brave and he had like sort of flaws, such as an inability to get along with certain other cast members in the comic, and he kind of hated vampires a lot, but that was it. But he actually originally wasn't a daywalker. Um, so that's, that's an interesting aspect, I think. He was more just a human being immune to being turned into a vampire. So he didn't have any of that superhero speed and strength we see in this movie Blade. He just relied solely on his wits and skill until he was bitten by a character, Morpheus, who was seen in a Peter Parker comic uh, back in 99. So Morpheus is being adapted right now as a superhero movie starring... Do you know who? I don't know who. No. What? Jared, Jared Leto. Oh, really? Yeah. Wait, as a, in the Spider-Man universe? What, what, is, what is this? Well, like Venom, oh. you know, like it's one of those standalone films. So for those who don't know, Morpheus is best described as a, 
uh, I was going to say a man bat, but that's actually a character as well. Um, <laughs> man bat. He's basically he's basically got like a sort of bat head, doesn't he? Wait, what? You got a bat head? Something like that. I think he does. <laughs> imagine, imagine if he was a. Anyway, look, Gabe and I aren't no comic book fans, and our sound, des- sound designer Sam is going to rake both of us uh-huh. over the coals after this episode for our lack of knowledge. So, Sam, we apologise. You know it would be real funny if he was a man bat, but he had the body of a bat and then just a little man head. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, anywho, that's the background to how Blade got up. Now, vampires, you think for a John Carpenter film, there'd be a lot about this on the interwebs. I couldn't find much. I mean- Put simply, a production company called Largo Entertainment bought the rights to a novel in 92 by an author named John Stakely. Again, it feels like the name is possibly made up, right? How could you possibly write a vampire film with a guy using stakes to kill vampires in the heart and coincidentally be called John Stakely? It was meant to be. Anywho, that's right. Uh, Besides Carpenter, uh, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, no surprise, uh, were considered to direct... And actually, Russell Mulcahy, the Aussie director, he of Highlander, was actually the first director to be attached. Now, you're going to love this. Uh, Dolph Lundgren was originally cast in the lead of Jack Crow. Wow, really? Yeah, and Willem Dafoe in a secondary role. Wow. Probably the role of Valak, which I could really see. Yeah, I could see that too, hey. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, long story short, the film was going to be a big sort of uh, 50, million, 50 to $60 million 96 film, but- Molke clashed with the studio. He left the project, taking Lundgren with him. And what actually happened was it was then retooled and after finishing Escape from LA, which you and your par saw back in 96, John Carpenter, who was thinking about quitting filmmaking because, quote, it stopped being fun, was then approached by this production company, Largo Entertainment, with vampires. Wow. And it had stopped being fun. I mean, it's interesting. It comes at an interesting point in uh, John Carpenter's career because, I mean, Escape from L.A. had come out two years before and it's not great. And Village of the Damned a year before that. And it's, you know, arguably John Carpenter's weakest movie in the mouth of manners before that rules. Um, But, you know, previous to that, he'd come off one of, like, the greatest sort of runs of a director. So he must have he sort of must have made this at a slight, you know, low point for for him. Um Yeah, I mean look looking at it now, twenty million dollars is still a great budget, but given his success before that, given that the original budget was fifty to sixty million, uh, and given the stars, quote stars, compared to our current lead actor we had cast James Woods, I guess this was sort of like it kind of evolved into more of a B project from an A project. Um, interestingly, he was interested in doing it because he saw it as a chance to do a Western mm. in the style of Howard Hawks, but kind of disguised as a horror film in his words, which as a guy who also composes his own music too, you can definitely hear that in the score as well. Yeah, I think he said before that Rio Bravo was like his favourite film and he sort of made riffs on that before. I mean, Assault on Precinct 13 is very much in that mould. So it's unsurprising. But this one, you know, with the sort of New Mexico setting and even the way it's shot has sort of, um, you know, sometimes uh, uh, recalling Leone or something like that, you know, with the sort of 
big wides and then big close-ups. Um, uh, I see that. I see that. So I guess we'd say quite confidently that even though both these movies are based on pre-existing intellectual property, Blade, a comic book, vampires, a novel, it appears yet again they coincidentally were created despite having a very similar concept separately and just happened to be released at the same time. So let's jump into our review of both these movies, starting with Blade. Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you about this film? What didn't float your boat? And based on this concept of trying to turn a vampire into an invincible daywalker, what did and didn't they get right about doing that? Um, hmm. <clears throat> I Like, having seen all of the, you know, comic book movies made in the last 20, 20 years, 22 years since Blade, I think it's fair to say that Blade and maybe actually Blade 2, and I don't know if we'll touch on that, but Blade 2 is, is fucking fantastic, are still probably the high watermark, the benchmark, the best of the greatest comic book movies made thus far, in my opinion. And, look, maybe that doesn't include, you know, those sorts of comic uh what do you call it? Like I'm doing, I'm doing uh, quote fingers here, comic book movies. I mean, they are comic book movies, graphic novels, things like if you start including things like actually a history of violence is based on a, a graphic novel. So maybe we should include that in the discussion. <laughs> but as it comes to a strict, you know, superhero movie, Blade, Blade and Blade 2 are still the best. Um, you know, we could talk about the photography. We could talk about the editing. We could talk about the casting. We could talk about the directing. We could talk about whatever you want. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it out there. They are the goat. Yeah. Okay. Let's circle back to those elements because I think they very much coalesce and form a great movie. And again, this is my re-review. Twenty-two years after the fact, I think this film is remarkable in some respects. And again, this is coming from me who did not enjoy it at the time. But looking back at this film now except for the computer-generated visual effects, which have dated, unfortunately. And that's very common. Like, films like the Star Wars prequels look terrible now as well. It's a real mistake um, compared to, say, when you use practical effects as vampires did for most of that film. This film dates in that way. But what it, it does and how it hasn't dated is that it really is a committed vision, I think. So they've leaned into the idea this is an R-rated in Australia, we call it MA and other countries too, but it's designed for like teenagers, older teenagers and adults. It's got violence, uh, swearing. Um, is there nudity in this particular blade? I can't recall. I don't think so. I don't think so. The Americans are pretty conservative in that regard normally, aren't they? No, and, and that makes it all the better for a young boy seeing it with his father. There'll be no awkwardness when, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the tits come on screen. It'll just be swearing and violence, which is really all you could ask for. <laughs> um, I mean, what I think it does well, and it surprised me actually, given the lack of experience as a feature director, uh, I think it was Stephen Norrington, who was the director of The First Blade, um, even though he had a very successful, uh, steady career in TV commercials, obviously doing a storyline spread out over 90 minutes or two hours is very different from 30 seconds. Um this film maintains a strong vision and a sense of place and character, which is quite remarkable. I actually think this film makes you appreciate how ahead of the time it was. It drops you into this world. It 
doesn't spend too much time building the origin. And that's interesting because many films after this, many comic book adaptations would dedicate two hours to the origin of a superhero. They'd probably spend 20 minutes to setting up the landscape, the world before the inciting incident, before Spider-Man is bitten by the radioactive spider, before the Hulk is zapped with radiation or whatever it might be. Then you have them discovering and using their skills. I suppose the most famous example of that is in Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man where you see him testing out his web and climbing walls. And I love that sort of stuff. It's basically the Rocky montage of working out what your superhero skills are and how to use them. And then they encounter the baddie who's now increased in power in some capacity and essentially have to take the baddie down once they've mastered most of their skills and discover what their vulnerabilities are. And that's fine. That's become the template for superhero films. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, bloody, it's almost like a just a cookie cutter these days. Yeah, whereas this film, quite courageously, I think, because to do an origin story, you're taking the audience on the journey. Like most people know who Spider-Man is, and most people knew Spider-Man was before the 2002 Raimi film. People have known about Batman, you know, since the 60s TV series. So you don't need to see necessarily a Batman origin story. Yeah, I think we've seen Batman's parents killed like four or five times on screen now between the Nolan films, the Snyder films, and the Tim Burton films, right? Yeah, I think you even see him get killed in that... uh Todd Phillips one, don't we? Yeah, exactly. There you go. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Exactly, right? So each of these films are obsessed with trying to set up that inciting incident that drives the hero to become the vigilante. What's pretty amazing about this film is that I would say 95, maybe even 99% of regular audiences would have had no idea who Blade is as a character. I would say he'd be like... Unknown to most people, almost a D-list character in terms of lack of awareness. This film goes, okay, you don't know who he is. We're not going to tell you except for a brief flashback where we see, spoiler, Blade become Blade when his pregnant mother with him is bitten by a vampire and then that's the result in him being half human, half vampire. We see that in a brief flashback, but otherwise he has his outfit on, he has his 2IC, his fellow, his Alfred, effectively, you know, his Q from James Bond, which is Chris Christopherson playing that character. He has the car, he has the lair, and the opening sequence just basically shows him what would seem to be, I don't know, like perhaps two, three, five years into his crime-fighting mission to eradicate vampires. Um, that's pretty ballsy, right? Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's really great. I mean, imagine if they tacked an extra half hour on the front of this, how dull it would be. Instead, throwing you into, and I think it's credit to kind of how awesome and imaginative the opening sequence of this movie is, the uh, blood rave, um, that really just sets him up as fucking a boss. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, now I I, I know everything I need to know. Um He's an awesome fighter. He does some one-liners. Um, it's just incredible. Like, it's interesting that you say that because you really take for granted how how well this movie is just willing to drop you straight into the action. Um, and, oh God, you really wish more more superhero movies would do that now. That, that 
it's so tedious seeing Doctor Strange start as an asshole and then learn a lesson when he gets some powers of, you know, magic hands. Like, who cares? Just start him as Mr. Strange, Doctor Strange, whatever. Strange man, PhD. Well, if you think about other characters in cinematic history that are popular, let's think about Indiana Jones, right? The first sequence shows him doing this dramatic rescue of this uh, artefact with a boulder chasing him and so on. Mm. We don't see him earn his PhD in his 20s and have to sort of like laboriously go through his path academia before he embarks that mission. We just drop you into the world. Totally. And we assume it's some sort of rogue grave robber and then we find out in the following scene when he's lecturing he's actually an academic as well. That's great. Like that's what's cool about that film. It makes you ask questions like who is this guy? How does he wear, excuse the pun, two hats? Like yeah. there's something clever about that and – I think to stick on Harrison Ford, let's take him playing Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy films, right? Those films, like Patriot Games, again, you don't see him become Jack Ryan. He's already established in his career. He's got a wife and kids. You haven't seen him meet his wife and have his children and start paying a mortgage and meeting his neighbour, et cetera, et cetera. He's already, you know, in the midpoint of his career, and then you have, say, a film which is the same character played by Ben Affleck where we see him for the very first time, you know, be exposed to espionage, to meet his upcoming wife. Mm. And then we see it again reboot with Chris Pine, same situation. Ah, yeah. We see him in the military, meets his girlfriend. Um, like even the TV show did the same thing. We see him starting off his career, meeting Abby Cornish's character, like – Trust the audience. Let them play catcher. Totally. And I think, you know, Indiana Jones waited till the third movie to do that kind of expository backstory, you know, with the, the River Phoenix opening of um, Last Crusade. And I, I agree. Like, it's much more interesting playing a little bit of catch-up to these characters um, than it is, yeah, laboriously watching, you know, Kevin Costner recruit Chris Pine, you know, Boring, boring. Just get on with it. Less Chris Pine, less Kevin Costner. <laughs> well, no, hey, no, no. Actually, Chris Pine's great. I'm a big fan of he of the four Hollywood Chris's. Uh, he's a favourite of mine. I like him. Yeah, look, it was the material. It wasn't the actors. Kevin Costner is a gem. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So tell me, Gabe, we've got this shared premise between these two movies about this whole idea of someone being the, the hunter becoming the hunted and being a key detail to empower his foes to become uh, daywalkers like him. What do you think about this execution in of, I guess, the character of Blade but also the movie in this premise? How does it work for you in this particular movie? Like what do they do well? What could they have perhaps done a little bit better? And what did they get right or improve upon in the second film? I mean, I suppose in Blade uh- – it makes a bit more sense that Blade himself is the key to the villains being able to execute on their plan of being able to wander around in the sunlight without having to wear a lot of sunscreen. Um, whereas in John Carpenter's Vampires, Jack Crow, James Wood's character, is simply trying to stop the villain from being able to do that. Like Jack isn't a isn't a component of uh, Valek's uh, plan. Um, so it's kind of, I guess, in Blade, Blade feels a bit more 
integrated, I suppose, into the plot. He is both a part of the mechanism and the, you know, protagonist or the antagonist, the protagonist's antagonist, the, the villain's foil, whatever. You know what I mean. Uh, so I quite like the way that, that Blade does it. Um, I'm not so sure why vampires always are obsessed with, oh, if only we could walk around during the day. Like, there's still plenty of night, fellas. You can still, you can still cause some mischief, but so it goes. They do love, they do love uh, watching a sunrise, if possible. Well, humans can also hang around at night as well. So if humans can work 24-7, vampires want the same. And let's face it, humans are mainly around in the daytime. So <laughs> if vampires feed off them, it makes sense to have access to that supermarket. <laughs> what do you mean? They're, they're, humans are mainly around in the daytime. Where do they go at night? They lie down. At nighttime, they're, they're, like a, they're, they're defenceless. That's actually a good point. Yeah, true. Fair enough. I think I, you're totally right about this whole idea of integration and I think it feels very mythical, right? True. The idea that the hunter, in this case Blade, is hunting something that is both against him but also part of him. To me, that's just a really iconic character attribute. It, it makes him, to use our screenwriting terminology, more grey. It's not black or white where he's just a clean goodie or a baddie. He's a bit of both. I mean, that is the essence of basically being an anti-hero. And that's why I think the character is so popular and I think that's what the film got right about it, both in terms of its R rating, in terms of violence and stuff, matching that idea that he's kind of half good, half evil. But also the screenplay actually, you know, has him become evil for a moment where basically he has to revert to drinking blood to empower himself because he's run out of his, essentially his soy milk equivalent, his serum. Um, That's cool. Like the idea that he has this thirst, uh, it's, I guess the best metaphor is an addiction of some sort, like an addiction to alcohol or drugs, Mm. and he has to resist it but then eventually he has to then suck the blood of the love interest character to be able to ultimately take down those baddies. So I guess you'd say in a very mythical way he has to become them to kill them, which is great. Like it's tapping into every possible complexity of an anti-hero character. And that's why I think I really appreciate it so much on Retrospect to watch it again is that those, what was sort of invisible to me at the time, I didn't appreciate the nuance of that was more evident this time. Um, it's cool. Like, it, it's just done so well. I mean, even the scene when he's becoming empowered again by sucking her blood is done really well um, to just draw home to you, he doesn't want to do this, but he has to do this. Uh, whereas in Vampires, James Woods could be anyone. He's not integral to this ritual. He's not like the guy whose powers they want to absorb. He's just the Joe Blow vampire killer who happens to be there this week. Yeah, although, I mean, yes, that's right. But, uh, you know, he's the one who uh, stumbled upon uh, Varlek. He's the one who is betrayed by the Catholic Church spoilers. He's the one who is... Uh, got just enough attitude to be the bloke to, uh, to, to, to stop it all. So... I, I see what you're saying, but um, you know, not not every not every movie about vampires needs to also be about half human, half vampire daywalker being the one to stop them. I think I think you're right, but you're also wrong. <laughs> well, I guess that's why I'm saying it's more mythological, right? It's more true, true. The idea of the iconic, the ultimate baddie against the ultimate goodie, 
and every stake is amplified. You know, he wants to kill them, but he is them. You know, like they're really accentuated every opportunity for him to have a conflict in his own mind. Now, before we move on to vampires, because I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on that, and you may not be keen to hear my thoughts on it, let's just quickly work through our hit list of what doesn't work about Blade. You go first. Having watched it again, like, for example, has it aged well and what parts to you, having watched it for the umpteenth time, just jump out as being a little bit janky? I think I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said some of the VFX in this film haven't aged particularly well. Um, ironically, there's like deleted scenes on the DVD that have like an alternate ending where Stephen Dorff turned into like a blood tornado that is unbelievably bad. And I'm not surprised they dumped that and went with what they went with. But, you know, when he sort of becomes this sort of tumorous mass and explodes, it looks pretty silly. So some of that doesn't quite doesn't quite work, even though some of the other vampire effects are pretty good, them getting dusted or whatever they, however they, whatever they refer to it as. Um, I mean, that doesn't quite work for me. I mean, apart from that, I find most of everything in this film pretty enjoyable, you know, good, good soundtrack, good photography, great performances. Hi, Stephen Dorff. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what I, I might be incredibly biased and look at all this through very uh, uh, crimson-tinted uh, uh, glasses. So I'm, I guess I'm more interested to know from you as a, as a convert what, uh, what didn't work. Yeah, as someone who's come around to really like in retrospect, and I've probably seen this film, I saw it once at the cinema, once since in parts, so this would be my third viewing and, yeah, a pretty radical revision of my earlier feelings towards it. Look, the visual effects really fail when it comes to liquids, which is a problem for a film which has blood in it. The stuff where the surfaces are dry, like when there's the initial, I guess, combustion of a vampire who becomes a skeleton, that's pretty good. I mean, like, that looks okay. Like, it's not fantastic, but the texture stands up better. But whenever there's liquid at all, uh, like you mentioned in the earlier scene uh, with Stephen Dorff, at the end they did dump that other scene, which you see on the special features, the deleted scene, because it looks terrible. Like even back then they recognised that. But they did try and retain a few elements where he's cut in half and the blood sprays out then kind of gets sucked back in and he's reformed. And, yeah, that looks pretty terrible. Um, I feel they could have used just shadow and uh, different framing to more effectively do that. Like, don't forget, we had Jurassic Park in 94, which through a clever combination of visual effects and puppetry and rain and shadow and carefully placed camera angles could make a dinosaur come alive. I do feel at the time there would have been better solutions for that. I think this is around that window of time where it was a bit like we'll fix it in post, in post-production. We'll, we can do this and people will just think it's really cool. And other films have shown that you can do it with old-school, clever camera angles and lighting and hide those flaws, whereas this film is it's brightly lit at that final fighting sequence, which is weird for a vampire film. Like, this would have been the ultimate excuse to, like, have huge shadows across the characters to try and make your life easier from a visual effects point of view. So I guess they just wanted to sort of, like, go all in and sort of, like, 
pull out all the toys in the toy box. So that's a shame. But but Ben, but Ben, that might be because they were also interested in, you know, foregrounding the fight choreography and stuff because, you know, as we talked about on Demolition Man, Wesley Snipes is a, he's actually a good, good fighter um, and he can, you know, do a lot of his own choreography and he's actually been the fight choreographer. I think he was the fight choreographer on Blade 2 or parts of this or anyway, whatever. But it may well be lit like that so that they can have, so you're not, just watching characters like in shadow fighting and it's all just a, a, a blur or a, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing. I think you're absolutely right. I'll tell you why. Because the action in this film is ahead of, ahead of its time. Like you didn't get to see actors do their own fighting sequences and like you said, in Demolition Man, the camera couldn't keep up with the slick moves of Wesley. In this film, it is shot in widescreen and Del Toro in the sequel does the same thing. And so we actually see Snipes doing all of his own action sequences. And if you had have casted in too much shadow, perhaps the audience would have seen more of a silhouette like we that fight sequence we saw in what was that film with Denzel Washington? Oh, Book of Eli. Oh yeah. Where it was sort of shot in that samurai Akira Kurosara style silhouette and looked really cool. But the audience might have thought they were using a stunt person instead and Wesley would might have said, you know, I'm the guy doing the the action here, show my face. So maybe, maybe that's right. Who knows? I sort of feel there's probably a solution where you could have done both. Yeah, true. Anyway, but the action was fantastic. I think it's some of the, it's amazing. Again, the action I think is aged really, really well. Like um, it's well done and it's cool seeing Wesley Snipes do all of his own scenes. Um, the part that was weird for me to watch, maybe uncomfortable. And I don't think this dates the film, but I'm unsure as to what the intention of the screenwriter or the director was, is the incest vibe between Blade and his mum. So to me it's unclear for moments in the film whether she actually is his mum because of the incest vibe going on and what's that, that meant to achieve. Well, What's your takeaway from that? Well, Ben... I'm going to throw it back on you and challenge you. What movie wouldn't be improved with just a little bit of incest? I mean, you pick any movie, <laughs> just put a touch of incest in there. I'm not talking about a lot, just just a little eyedropper of incest, and I can guarantee you that movie will be just a little bit better. Wow. Okay. As always, Gabe's views do not represent the views of this podcast. And look, maybe Steve Orrington was hanging out on the set of Happiness another film from 1998. There you go. And was partly inspired. It's possible, right? It's possible. A bit of tonsillands in your movie. Exactly, exactly. Just, you know, uh, Norrington had some bigger ideas about putting knockout drugs in tuna in Blade and didn't want to go that far. <laughs> but had to settle on just a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, smoky tension between um, <laughs> Blade and his mum. But that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Let's jump to our review of vampires, but not just any vampires, John Carpenter's vampires. So, Gabe, walk me through, did this film deliver on the premise of bringing daywalkers to life and what did and didn't work for you? I mean, I get the feeling that we're going to have different opinions on this one, but fuck, I just find this movie such a good a good time. Um, it's very violent. It's... You know, it's not it's not campy, but it's very, uh, maybe the bad guy's campy. I don't know. But no, it is it is campy. It is definitely campy. Okay, then it's right. Great. Okay, it's campy. It's 
overly self-serious but also is like have all these one-liners. I love the cast. Um, I love the really heavy orange grad filters that are on every single shot. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's not... It's not a masterpiece. It's not redefining shit, but fuck. I just always have a good time with it. I find it really easy to watch. And look, it might be because you often have a soft spot for those movies that you watched a lot as a kid. You know, like it's really hard to experience this for the first time or even really, you know, (laughs) even really even follow the plot anymore. I just let it wash over me in an awesome way. What is it about that you like? I mean, looking at it, as objectively as possible now. Uh, okay. Is it the mishmash of the Western genre with the horror genre? Is it the casting? Is it the idea that Carpenter's behind it and you've got a soft spot for him? Like, okay. What if this film was made by someone else and starred other people and they're big ifs, but the actual film that you see on screen, what is it that, that floats your boat? I like, okay, start with the cast. I think the, the cast is great. Um, and I think they're all perfect in their roles. Yes, that's right. Daniel Baldwin is perfect in the role of Anthony Montoya. Um, I think James Woods is great as this sort of like cynical, hard-bitten, um, take-no-shit, uh, one-liner delivering, jackass, asshole, fuckhead, vampire killer. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't have, you couldn't have cast it better. You know, and it always reminds me. It's such a shame he sort of morphed into the worst aspects of the best aspects of his screen persona in real life. Um, you know, Thomas Ian Griffiths is great as Valek. Um, ah, the, the, the photography. I love how just uh, gross the vampires are. You know, that they're sort of like indestructible but shit. <laughs> you know, like the opening sequence when he like sort of stabs the vampire in the head with the stake where they just like pump them full of thousands of bullets. I like that the vampire hunters are like hard-drinking um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? The, 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 the cop at the beginning, he's like, I've, I've emptied out every liquor store and whorehouse for the last week. For the, like, they're just, they're a shit-kicking bunch of deadbeats, you know? Um, I can't imagine how any vampire hunting team would be like, ah, oh, yes, we need Mark Boone Jr. He will be an exceptional vampire killer, you know? <laughs> Some, uh, I mean, they seem kind of hopeless, you know? Uh, I love that. Um, uh, I don't know, man. It just all works for me. Do, do, do you, why don't you just tell me what doesn't work and I'll, I'll, I'll try and refute that shit. Um, okay. James Woods resembles David Crusoe from CSI Miami. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's remarkable. Like the hair, the glasses, the slight receding hairline, uh, he is a dead ringer for Caruso, which is quite remarkable, I must say. So that's just an observation. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of David Crusoe in CSI Miami, so I would say that's a compliment, but it's it's interesting. Look, the film feels very of its time. It's sexist and borderline misogynistic. Like, you don't make that film now in 2020 with $20 million. It feels more like a $3 million exploitation movie. Mm. Daniel Baldwin feels like he's bringing some sort of off-screen <laughs> hostility to the role. Oh, man. <laughs> like, it yeah. feels like he's taking all of his frustrations with his famous two brothers being more successful than him and channeling it into this performance. Like, yeah. there's a lot of anger behind him. And I thought, okay, surely he hasn't been in more than 20, 30 films. Oh, oh, no. 
How many films do you think Daniel Baldwin has been in or how many credits do you think he has on IMDb? I would guess 100. It's like 169 or something, 136, 136. Without being too libelous or defamatory or slanderous or whichever one it is when you deliver a line like I'm about to on a podcast, but I also feel like he's probably bringing his off-screen cocaine problems, alcohol abuse, just whatever causes men to be exceptionally sweaty. Oh, so it's from the school of Tom Sizemore. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But he had come off the back of two or three years before this being on Homicide Life on the Street. Um, which is an incredibly well, you know, um, respected TV series. So back in 1998, you know, he might not have been hitting the giddy heights of Alec, but he was probably on a par with Stephen. Look, yeah, I mean, it is hard to watch him and not think of his brothers. Like you do feel like you're getting a definite mishmash of Alec and Stephen. Like he looks... Incredible. Like he looks like half half of each. It's like <laughs> some sort of weird uh, science experiment, like weird science. So I was just mesmerised by his face for most of the movie and his performance. It It's interesting to watch this movie 22 years after its release for many reasons. Uh, besides the sexism and misogynism, its look is very definitive and that's not a bad thing. This is unquestionably a 1990s film shot on film stock. The brightness but also low contrast colour palette I actually do like and it reminds you how good a film can look and how crap it was in that window of time between around probably, I don't know, 2002 to about as late as 2014. Like it feels like a long time, maybe 12, 15 years where – the filmmaking community was just sorting out the tech to do digital film. And just for so long, it just would fluctuate between a filmic look and a video look, but inconsistently, which is very frustrating. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it was consistently video, like Michael Mann's Miami Vice from 2004, 2006. And it wasn't consistently film looking. It was at no man's land. I think Mel Gibson's Apocalypto kind of, captured that problem, you know, just it. the highlights blew out. Uh, it was just too high contrast. The movement wasn't quite right. This film looks great. Like I feel I can feel these guys on the set putting film in the camera and shooting it in those locations. And if you're going to do a Western mishmash movie, I think that's pretty important to have the right aesthetic in that regard. So I kind of like that. Um it almost looked a bit like a TV show in some respects. You know those TV shows shot in the 90s on film? Like it felt in some ways I could – I got that sense. Um, I guess that's my criticisms. You've kind of jazzed me up, i got to say, with your enthusiasm for this in how you describe these, you know, bunch of losers who would otherwise be probably selling drugs but happen to be catching vampires. <laughs> I like that concept. I think that's cool. And I think the book actually is spelt vampires where the S is a dollar sign. Oh, yeah. And I feel like perhaps in the book there's a story where these guys for a lot longer than just the first 10 minutes are going from town to town killing vampires for cash. They're doing it as a business, not because they're altruistic, but it's just to pay their bills to their ex-wife and kids back on the East Coast or something like that. That film kind of interests me more. 
I like that idea. I like when you've got like a world where something that we see is so commonplace has a market for it, like a rat catcher exists, right? In this film, vampires seem to still be secretive, which doesn't quite gel with the idea of a few schmucks doing it for cash. But if vampires were considered to be more integrated into society, they weren't as secret and they were basically like vermin, they were a pest, then there'd be a really interesting story I think you'd follow with this ragtag team of basically the C-list of the Dirty Dozen just getting paid sweet FA like rat catchers to go from town to town to take down the vampires. A bit like, um, what's that TV show? Like like True Blood, right? You know, like everyone knows the vampires exist and so people then live in disharmony with them. That kind of interests me more, I think, than the film we get. Don't you think, though, that in a way both vampires and Blade and probably all vampire movies generally, they always sort of struggle with this idea or vampire movies that have, like, vampires as a secret they always sort of struggle with that because you're right. I mean, if the local sheriff has ostensibly been organising for these guys to, you know, uh, live in his town while they kill these vampires, if the local sheriff knows, before you know it, everyone's going to know. And the same with Blade, you know, the idea that they're sort of um, uh, in, slowly infiltrating um, uh, government or that they've done sort of deals to remain, you know, um, to remain a, a a secret, but there's an understanding. Um, you know, I think at one point Stephen Dorff says to Udo Kier, and that humans are cattle. You know, they're our they're our food. Why are we doing this sort of stuff? I never really buy it. You have to sort of just go along with it. And in the spirit of that, I think I'm more than happy to do that with John Carpenter's vampires um, and Blade. You know, I think he gets away with it because it's set in this small town, which is partly based on the budget, but because the idea that these guys travel from tiny town to tiny town in Midwest America. And so they don't actually encounter many people that actually ask the question, what vampires? Are they a real thing? Like I think the only person we actually meet in this movie who is outside this world is the sheriff and the character played by Cheryl Lee who gets bitten, who are the only two characters who are outside the vampire world or outside the church. Is that right? So there's rarely opportunity for someone to question the existence of these creatures. That's correct. And it's very self-contained in that way. And then also, like you say, apparently the vampires just like to hang out in like dilapidated farmhouses. They haven't uh, or we never see that perhaps they, you know, are they in cities? Maybe not, you know, maybe like that sweet red earth of the, you know, uh, New Mexico desert. I think that's the thing that True Blood, the TV series, did really well is if you just basically, look, accept they're not a secret society because once you've got more than, say, a couple, right, then people are going to find out. I mean, even in something like Van Helsing, either the Stephen Summers movie we reviewed for our last podcast episode or the TV adaptations, even with one vampire like Dracula, people are going to find out. Like the word gets out that there is this mythical creature that's alive somewhere in the world. But if you actually then go, okay, we won't try and keep them a secret, we'll just accept that they're part of our society, then you get to explore interesting ideas where vampires become a stand-in for racial minorities or other minorities. And then the idea is whatever tensions you'd have now, 
between different races and different cultures, I just amplified with the stakes that they will turn you into one of them or kill you and you will live forever. But there is- Well, that's a bit, uh, what do you call it, uh, Proven? Are you saying that the vampires is- We're going <laughs> to deep dive into this for a sec. The vampires are stand in for other racial minorities, i.e. white people continue to get to be white people, but vampires as other races get othered as vampires and are seen as bloodsuckers, Ben? Is that what you're saying? We should- well, interestingly, Gabe, you sh- showed your white middle-class bias by assuming <laughs> that the vampires weren't white. Ah. Interestingly, right, you could actually argue that the vampires could be a stand-in for uh, Christianity in the 16th century. Oh, nice. Trying to proselytise people around their world against their will to force them to their way of living. Uh, and if they don't agree, they get killed. I like it. Sound familiar? I like it. And look, Blade uh, Blade did this well because Blade's an African-American and all the white vampires are sort of Euro-trash douchebags. Yeah, and also vampire, he's a vampire who is uh, not a purebred in that they criticise Stephen Dorff for being converted vampire, whereas they are all born vampires. So automatically there's a hierarchical structure to the vampire society where if you're born a vampire, you're closer to royalty um, and a... a an affluential leader of some sort. And Stephen Dorff is essentially, you know, the the working class vampire, the impure rising up and taking over. And then Blade is a black hero, which was not as common at the time, a black superhero, which was even a small minority. And this film, he just falls between worlds. So he's basically the ultimate minority, right? True. The ultimate minority. All right. Well, he's not He's not human. He's not vampire. He's a black man in a white vampiric world. I think there's actually another black vampire as well, though, so it's not quite as clearly cut about uh, colour. But it does definitely, I think, play on some of those racial divisions we have. Vampires, John Carpenter's vampires, doesn't do that as much, but I don't think it's trying to, right? Like... It feels like it's a little bit dirtier, rough around the edges. Uh, it's contained in its world and its story. And I I think you're right. You just have to go with it. Like in the same way that you go with the idea that miraculously Lois Lane doesn't recognise that Clark Kent without, without glasses is Superman and no one can recognise the chin and lips of Bruce Wayne as Batman. You just go with the idea that in both these films, somehow it's maintains a secret uh, and move on because that's kind of become the assumption you enter as the audience, the contract you make with the filmmaker with many of these mythological characters. It's a secret and you, the filmmaker, or so you, the viewer, is finding out at the same time as some of the characters on screen. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say that John Carpenter's Vampires says nothing about anything of consequence. <laughs> like... And maybe that's why I don't like it as much because, I mean, basically it's just essentially it's a Dirty Dozen type movie where people die, uh, there, are, there are potential, um, what do you call it, like betrayals of some sort in the sense that at the end Stephen Baldwin has become- Daniel Baldwin. Daniel Baldwin, sorry. Oh, no. Apologies to Baldwin. Has become a vampire and now, he, the again, the hunter will become the hunted and- James Woods will have to try and hunt down his best friend. Uh, 
So that's an that's a classic trope of you know those types of movies, but I don't know. Maybe the film does doesn't uh, inspire me because it's too simple. Like the story is basically one set piece after one set piece without much growth to any of the characters except maybe the priest who starts killing people and makes jokes about getting a heart on at the end of the movie. But there doesn't seem to be much growth by the main character, James Woods. He's the one guy that remains the same. And it essentially, like some other films, everyone else around him grows. Is that the best story analysis I can choose here? Yeah, although I think you're even being generous to everyone around him. I mean, some of them die and, yeah, Chubbs Baldwin uh, is turned into a vampire, but no one really learns any lessons here. I mean, the priest character, I suppose, toughens up a little bit. He gets a, a little bit of wood there when he was stabbing the vampire, but that's about it. You know, a priest gets a major chubby could be the description of the entirety of the change that happens to any characters in this movie. Okie doke. Well, we should probably type this review because we've run longer on this review than most. Let's do a quick combined review. So, any notable similarities between these and was it a coincidence or ripoff? I mean, a real big one, I don't know if you noticed this, Ben, but Tim Guinea is in both of these movies. Who's he? Okay, he plays Father Adam Guiteau. I don't know how to pronounce his name, in Vampires. He plays the priest who joins James Woods and Daniel Baldwin's characters. And then in Blade, he plays the um, the doctor who tries to sort of hit on um, who tries to hit on Karen. The ah, uh, oh, good spot. I didn't recognise him at all. Well done. Yeah, who's then turned into a huge coincidence. Who's then turned into a kind of zombie vampire. Um, so there you go. Nice. What a year it was for Tim Guinea. <laughs> Which film has aged better? I would say. Blade, not because of the visual effects, but I'd say it's left a stronger legacy and is more rewatchable. Ah, oh, definitely. And like you said before, look, some of John Carpenter's vampires, misogyny or, you know, uh, doesn't play maybe quite as well, uh, <laughs> doesn't play quite as well as it did in the uh, 1990s. Uh, you certainly can't get away with, you know, even if you say, hey, that's what the that's the character, you know, Jack Crow throws around some homophobic language or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it certainly dates the movie a little bit, doesn't it? Totally. Okay, plot holes or missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers have done better with the high concept? Uh, I'll start with Blade. I guess one massive get-out-of-jail card they had is that they killed off Whistler at the end of Blade, the first Blade, off-screen, which allowed them to bring him back, spoilers, for Blade 2, which was very fortunate. So not a plot hole, uh, but a little bit of stretch in terms of, you know, credit credulity. Uh, yeah. How about you? It's a, it's a weird uh, – you wouldn't call it a retcon, would you, but – Blade 2 does that opening title sequence which sort of recaps Blade 1 and they definitely fudge Whistler's death in that so that, you know, Blade can find him in the opening of Blade 2. I mean, yeah, he shot himself in the head. You're dead, mate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what do we find out he actually did do? Did he pull the trigger but we can extrapolate from that he just didn't have the courage to actually aim it at his head? I guess so. And, look, I'd understand why you'd want Chris Christopherson back for the sequel because, come on, he's fucking great in Blade. Yeah, totally. 
How about vampires? Any missed opportunities there or major plot holes? I mean, I think we sort of talked about them. You could you could have done a lot of things better, but would you want to? Maybe not. Well, here's my major plot hole. I like the idea, like the cool concept of actually firing the crossbow, whacking them in the abdomen with the arrow and then that's hooked up somehow. I don't quite know how it goes from the crossbow <laughs> yeah, that doesn't- to the car. They don't quite show that. Like he fires these arrows which are coming from the crossbow yet somehow is linked to the truck. And I like the idea of the truck then pulling the winch and pulling them out into the sun. But it does feel like it's one of those very specific situations that they can't be in rooms or around corners like it, or upstairs. It does make you wonder, you know, in the opening they killed, what, like nine or 11 vampires or whatever. Surely one or two of those vampires would have been killed down a flight of stairs or around a corner. How, how, half your team would be having to work out kinks in the cable, you know? You have one guy just on schematics. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, and look, Daniel Baldwin, he obviously has the best job. He just stands out the front smoking cigarellos. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's move on then to our trivia. Let's start with some behind-the-scenes making of. Uh, Little Did You Know. Now, being a big fan, Gabe, I'm sure you're already across most of the background to this. Uh, One thing was apparently in the DVD commentary, David Goyer, the writer, explained that when Karen actually wakes up in Blade's hideout after the attack, after Blade has rescued her, in the script... It had to discover a jar with a vampire baby in it and the baby would have been alive and the implication is that Blade and Whistler are using it as a guinea pig for testing out weapons to fight vampires. But the studio found that a little bit too disturbing and refused to allow it in. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's really like that scene you see in Alien Resurrection where Sigourney Weaver discovers all of those uh, aborted, excuse the pun, unfortunately, attempts to clone her and you see various versions of Sigourney Weaver and an alien mashed together and some of them are horrific and then one of them is actually alive and or half alive and eventually they ostensibly actually got it right with the Sigourney character you see on screen. Hmm. There you go. Uh, apparently also Chris Christopherson's character Whistler was created for Blade's cameo on Spider-Man, the animated series 94, and the CEO of Marvel liked that so much. That's how it was actually adapted in the Marvel Universe, which is kind of cool because I like the idea that he has a human, fully human sidekick and also someone to talk to as well, like someone to confess to, to help him as well. Like had he been alone, I think it makes him – Less accessible. Yeah, right. I love that cartoon uh, series, that 1994 Spider-Man. Just Yeah, it's a classic. It's great. Apparently as well, Karen was originally going to be played by a white actress, but Wesley Snipes encouraged them to cast a black actress. So that's pretty cool. I think this was a time when he had more producing power and was trying to use it to sort of have more diversity on screen, which I think is really good because I'm sure those white middle-class suits at the studio would have been anxious enough having a black lead character, even having Wesley Snipes, yet he was still keen to try and push diversity further through the cast. Um, It's a really good sign of an actor using his authority for good and trying to have a more racially interesting dynamic cast than what you'd ordinarily see in pretty homogenous movies, right? Yeah, and I think um, Anne Boucher Wright, I think I believe is the name of the actress, she's she's great in the role and it's much more interesting having – 
two African-American leads, I think. Um, it would feel like the sort of obvious and easy and much more dull choice to yeah, have bunged in, you know, Julia Roberts in there. Totally. Now, moving on to Vampires. Again, this film isn't as popular, so it's harder to find much more about it. Um, these types of movies have cult following, but not in the same way that all of the, uh, you know, comic book uh, nerds, and I say that affectionately, have when trying to find dig up details as the making of. But we have talked before about Roger Ebert. Well, his co-reviewer, Gene Siskel, enjoyed Vampires so much. He thought that Woods should be nominated for an Oscar for his performance in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, who would he have been up against? That would have been, what, the 1999 Oscars. Oh, look, okay, that's fine. Who won? Roberto Benigni. James Woods is better than Roberto Benigni. Okay, so straight away. <laughs> yeah, totally. Tom Hanks got nominated, Ian McKellen got nominated, Nick Nolte got nominated and Edward Norton got nominated. Fucking how did Roberto Benigni win? God damn, what a travesty that shit was. Anyway, look, all I'm saying is I would put Woods above Benigni but maybe not above the rest. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right, moving on. Uh, let's go to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Okay, got a few interesting ones here. So guess who was up as one of the baddies? Actually, let's start with vampires. So I mentioned before it was Dolph Lundgren and Willem Dafoe. Would that have made a better movie, do you think? Um, I don't know. It might have made a different one. I mean, it's very, very easy to picture Willem Dafoe, I presume, as Valek. It's definitely a different movie with uh, Dolph as Jack Crow. Um, I mean, it'd be kind of weird because if Dolph was playing Jack Crow, he's almost too physically imposing to be fighting, you know, Willem Defoe. I mean, something that kind of works for the movie is James Woods is really wiry in this. There's a few shots where he looks very skinny, <laughs> like he's not much. <laughs> he looks like he's got the body shape of Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> yeah. from the first few seasons of Seinfeld, like a size 28 <laughs> snugger jean. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. So I don't know. What do you think? What do you think with that? Yeah, I think Dolph would have been too overwhelmingly strong. I mean, I guess you could say that if you've got Willem Dafoe who's small and has that maniacal face, he'd be really good as the supernaturally powered vampire and thus give um, Dolph a run for his money. But I can't imagine Dolph being as charismatic as Woods in this role in terms of the quips and the attitude. There is something good about James Woods looking like essentially he looks like a cop or a, a truck driver from the region where he's fighting, which I kind of appreciate. He's more reliant on his guns and his crossbow than his muscles, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Dolph did a movie in 1993 called Joshua Tree where the bad guy is played by George Siegel, who's that older actor, you know, who was like in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966 and... Um, well, he was in some TV show, Just Shoot Me, for years. And it's really weird seeing the fight scene at the end of that between, you know, Dolph and an old man. Yeah, totally. Like, it doesn't quite work, does it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, sure. Um, let's jump back to Blade then. Apparently, when Goya, the writer, first pitched the idea of doing Blade to the New Line executives, he had three actors in mind, Wesley Snipes, Denzel Washington and Lawrence Fishburne. And I can see all three of those in the role. Tell me, though, would they make a better Blade, Denzel or Lawrence? I don't think so. And didn't they recently announce that uh, 
Mahashala Ali is going to do a new blade for Marvel. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm sure he'll get buffed because he's not as buffed as Wesley Snipes right now, but they've obviously decided to go back to a younger blade. Not that he's a young guy, but he's younger than Wesley Snipes. I guess at the time, back in 98, well, Denzel would have probably been around 40 anyway, so they would probably have been... I would say Denzel and Lawrence wouldn't have been as fit and couldn't have fought as well as Wesley Snipes. I think Wesley Snipes definitely infuses the character with a physicality and a comic book, quote, coolness, unquote, which Denzel and Lawrence wouldn't have done, even though I love both those actors and you know I love them in The Matrix and in The Equalizer, for example. I just can't imagine them pulling off the comic book character as well as Snipes does in this film. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think Snipes is pretty iconic in this role and the way he's done it, it's very hard to picture someone else doing it as well. Yeah, I think he made it his own. And even though LL Cool J was originally cast, again, can't see him pulling it off in the same way as Snipes. Yeah. With the tood, the attitude. The tood. I don't know if you ever saw the the short-lived Blade TV series where... Oh, who played Blade in that? There was a Blade TV series. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, hold on. So what's interesting about that is that Blade, the movie, was ahead of the curve in terms of serious comic book adaptations, which means Blade, the TV series, would have been ahead of the curve for a comic book movie, a comic book series, because we've had those Marvel ones that were Netflix, um, Iron Fist, Daredevil, The Punisher... Jessica Jones, they were all great, particularly Jessica Jones and the first season of Daredevil. But, yeah, I completely forgot about Blade. That's a flashback. Who was in it? Uh, So I think it was made in around 2006 and a rapper called Sticky Fingers played Blade. (laughs) Don't go there. Oh, man. I I didn't name him. (laughs) How about the alternative actor for Deacon Frost, Jet Li? What do you think? Wow, really? I mean, I get that, you know, Snipes was obviously trying to go for a, a Hong Kong action-infused style, but, I mean, look, fuck, that would have been a very interesting movie. I'd love to travel through the dimensions of time and space into a multiverse Earth 7 that I could watch that, but, yeah, wow. If you want to travel through a multiverse with Jet Li, then you should watch the film The One because he does just that and you'd like that very much. I I have seen that, and I do. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to Spot the Aussie. Any Aussies in Blade? Uh, Was there any Aussies? I guess we'd say the original director, Russell Mulcahy. That's a stretch. That is a stretch. I I, I didn't spot any. No. How about in Vampires? I don't think so either. No. No. All right, moving on. No Aussies. The films are good in spite of that. Uh, marketing methodology, madness and missteps, starting with Blade. Look, it appears the advertising of this was pretty consistent. There weren't any dramas. Uh, with Vampires, I think it was just a lack of publicity which didn't help its box office. But can you recall any incidents at the time? I Look, I can barely remember the marketing campaigns for either of these movies and particularly Vampires. Like, I, th- Surely this wasn't even widely released in Australia, was it? No, it wasn't. No, No. I mean, it was released at my local multiplex, but looking at the box office, which we'll get to now, I don't think we've got a big release. So let's jump to that. 
You have a guess, Gabe, and I'm sure you've got no idea <laughs> which movie was the box office champ. Well, surely, surely Blade had reigned supreme, although I'm interested to know how much money John Carpenter's vampires made. Okay, well, let's kick it off with Blade first of all. Blade uh, made $70 million in the States plus $61 million overseas for a grand total of $131 million. I think it had a budget of about 45 or something like that. So not a huge smash at all, but pretty good for that uh, rating, I suspect, and also how unknown that character was. Whereas Vampires uh, didn't do so well. Cost 20, made 20 domestically, uh, and barely any overseas. It's saying here that it made... No money overseas, but it definitely played in Australia. So, yeah, not great. But it must have been popular enough on video and DVD because they made a sequel to it. Oh, no, really? Wow. Yeah, John Bon Jovi's in it. No. Yeah, it's called Vampires Los Muertos, I think. Wow, John Bon Jovi. And, and Diego Luna. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a podcast episode all by itself. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Let's move on uh, to Rotten Tomatoes. Which movie do you think impressed the critics? I mean, Blade must have got good reviews, right? Well, Blade has only 55% on the tomato meter with critics versus John Carpenter's Vampires has 40%. Wait, what? It's It boggles my mind that Blade has such a low um, critical... I don't know, rating? What the fuck do you call that? A critical, had, had such a- Aggregated score, yeah. Because every fucking Marvel movie these days ends up with some weirdly high, you know, aggregated, yeah. Come on, Blade is better than 75%, 100%, 100%. Blade is 120% better than 120% of the current Marvel movies. Maybe the world wasn't ready for Blade. Totally. Maybe critics weren't ready for Blade. Like Ben here wasn't ready for Blade. <laughs> but I think you I think you're right because surely back then this movie was probably much more seen as a disposable uh sort of silly throwaway whereas now, you know, for better or worse, it's it is the common mainstream, well actually the PG version of this sort of movie is, but you know, Yes. What a shame. Yeah. Blade, you were so ahead of your time. Guess the audience reaction. Great. Yep. So Blade has 78% and Vampires has 47%. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, we've got to start the awards, I think. So let's go with best title. <laughs> um, I'm giving it to Blade. Uh, it could have been called Fang, but I like that his name is the character, is the title. I like... It works. He's got a sword. He uses it. It sounds good. I, I think Vampires is a bit lazy, and I feel that the title of the book was originally based on, which had the dollar sign through the S, perhaps spoke more to the thematics of the, of the book better. I don't think John Carpenter's Vampires of Vampires is particularly the best way to try and set yourself out in the marketplace as the go-to vampire movie you must see. Uh, wrong. That, that's me. Wrong. If I'm standing in a video store and I'm looking at a VHS cassette tape, and it says John Carpenter's Vampires. In the grand tradition of knock a new Ben for a title doing 
on the tin, what it says it will do <laughs> on the screen, mate, I am drawn to that. I'm going to be like, hello. Uh, also, how great is it that, and look, maybe it wasn't called this when it was theatrically released, but, you know, on IMDb, it's literally called John Carpenter's Vampires. How many movies have the director's name in the title as the official title? Yeah, that's definitely a retcon title, though. I'd say based on the bad box office in the first place and an opportunity to try and get some more cash cash in the uh, sort of ancillary sales on DVD. Yeah, yeah. but Because the posters for the movie when it came out theatrically just say vampires. But you're right, it's the DVD and VHS covers that say John Carpenter's vampires. Yeah, that's right. And in the history of retcon titles, you know, it's not like um, they're doing Doug Lyman's Kill, Die, Repeat. It's just called Die, Kill, Repeat, whatever, whatever they called Edge of Tomorrow on Blu-ray, you know. Or Birds of Prey, you know, um, and the fabulous emancipation, I think, of Harley Quinn. Yeah. What are they? They just turf that long-ass bit. I think they just called it Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey. Right, right. Well, if this was a title retcon, John Carpenter's Vampires is the greatest of them all. <laughs> all right. I think we're going to give it a dead rubber. And we've got one vote each way, so I don't think John Carpenter at the age of 72 is taking this award home, but nor is Stephen Orrington, who seems to have retired from movies, which we'll get to. Let's jump to best poster. Um, I'm giving it to Blade. Now, very quickly to the podcast listeners, if you're using an app which isn't the Apple Podcast app, you will see for this episode I'll have for your viewing pleasure. Gabe and I provided you with the both posters side-by-side, for the episode artwork so you can compare posters. But if you don't have that in front of you, Blade has Wesley Snipes looking directly at the viewer, looking tough with his sort of bulletproof outfit, leather jacket, glasses, red background to kind of imply blood and horror, and the words Blade written in silver writing like a sword. Vampires, various posters, but basically have the guys on a hill, either silhouettes or lit from the front with a red background with a floating kind of vampire head image and a sense of sort of flames. And it's kind of retrospective of a dirty dozen men on a mission movie. So, Gabe, over to you. Which do you think is the best poster? I mean, neither of them are particularly iconic, but I'll give it to Blade. Although Wesley's arms look a little short. Yeah, I thought the same thing. He looks like he's got he's doing like shrugs with dumbbells and they've taken the dumbbells out with Photoshop. Yeah, I don't know. But he looks a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, they're not great posters, I agree. Uh, I think they were better. Also, who's behind Wesley? I'm assuming that's the face of Stephen Dorff. Oh, is it? Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Blade gets it, uh, but not by much. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So in these movies, Gabe, who jumped into the Hollywood big time and got their big break, starting with Blade? Um, well, was this probably um, N. Boucher Wright's first big movie and last big movie? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm putting her down for this award and the other award coming up, potentially the Mickey Rourke Award. I'd never seen her before when I saw this film and 22 years later, I haven't seen her since. But this is a huge break for her. I mean, she's got a – I mean, I said before she's a love interest, but to be fair, she's actually a pretty active character, I've got to say. Like, she doesn't actually kiss Wesley Snipes and pine for him on screen. 
She's reasonably got a bit of um, autonomy and a sense of um, agency. So it's a good role for her. And up until this film, she'd been in a couple of TV episodes, but not much at all. Like, this is a huge break. Come on, dude. She was in uh, She was in Fresh and Dead Presidents, the Hughes Brothers film Dead Presidents. You never saw that one? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. Okay. All right. Pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. How about vampires? Uh, anyone... Get a big leg up here from an indie film. Uh, well, no. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think so. I think we I think Daniel Baldwin had his break on TV already, as you said. Cheryl Lee had her break already, albeit in a small role, but her image was quite iconic from David Lynch's Twin Peaks TV series. Oh, yeah. I think super iconic. I think Anne Bush gets it. Okay. All right. Moving on to the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. Okay, I've got a great one here, but I'm going to save it. You go first, starting with Blade. So this is before they were famous. Yeah. This is not an actor that you often see no. and go, hey, it's that guy. That's a later one. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Why don't, tell, tell me who you got. Come on. I'm going to throw you a bone. Okay. There wasn't anyone in Blade who has kicked on to become a major star in their own right or anything like that, I don't think. But tell me if you disagree. However, I did see in the credits, so this is a little bit of a cheat because they're not quite on screen in a classical way, but stuntman Chad Sehelski, director of John Wick 1, 2 and 3, actually appears in Vampires. Oh, that's cool. That's a, I, I cannot top that. All right. So Chad gets it. Well done, Chad. You've had plenty of accolades in the past for those three John Wick films, but this award I think will be your best one yet. Moving on, the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Who stole the show like Tommy Lee did in The Fugitive despite being in a small or poorly written role? Starting with Blade. Any show stealers there? Well, I mean, you know any movie he's in that we talk about, I'm going to bring him up. Yudo Kia turns up in this as um, Dragonetti, one of the sort of, or the head of the vampire council who has his teeth pulled out and explodes when he's forced to watch a sunrise. Come on, Yudo. Yeah, this is basically, I think, his iconic role. I recall him in the 22 years since this movie from this film. He just looks evil. <laughs> he's so great. I love Yudo. Um, I didn't, he, he became famous off. Andy Warhol movies, didn't he? Isn't that what sort of, you know, playing- I didn't know that, really. He, Yeah, he played Count Dracula in Blood for Dracula. Wow, okay, interesting. Okay, okay, I had no idea. Um, look, for me, I've got to say, I actually think that Chris Christofferson, he's in a pretty small role. He doesn't do much, he doesn't say much, but I like what he does on screen. Like, there's this great sequence when he first meets Karen when she wakes up in the lair- and he kind of chases her and he's sort of hobbling around his leg. And he's just got great presence on screen and not the sort of person you'd ever expect to be in this movie at all. And I don't know, a combination of obviously his beard and his hair, but he just conveys the grizzled sidekick so well. Um, I also thought that Donald Logue, who played oh, yeah. the other 2IC, the other sidekick, uh, the henchman effectively of Stephen Dorff, was great as well. So I've got those guys down. Um, as for vampires, um, I don't know. I actually thought that Cheryl Lee playing Katrina was actually doing a bit more with 
the role than actually what she probably had on the page, to be fair. Yeah, I thought she was good. Look, I think the sort of four main characters in Vampires, Jimmy Woods, Daniel Baldwin, Cheryl Lee and Thomas Ian Griffith, all really, really go for it in their roles. Look, I really like Thomas Ian Griffith absolutely hamming it up as Varlek. The only movie you probably really remember him from is um, Karate Kid 3, where he played Terry De Silva, the sort of villain. But he was in tons of kind of DTV, straight-to-video action movies with names like Hollow Point and Excessive Force in the 90s. So it was great seeing him turn up in in this in a slightly sort of uh, bigger role in a more widely released film. All right, Gabe, you've talked me into it. Thomas Ingrifith, you get the Tommy Lee Award. Well done, my friend. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Nice. Ooh, I like this one. The Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Now, before we <laughs> name the nominees for who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, Gabe, did you want to possibly uh, retitle this award? Because we have retitled it two or three times. You kind of tend to sort of want to try and recognise another failing actor. Is there anyone else you'd like to consider to be a nominee to change the title of the award before we nom- nominate the nominees for the actual award? It's basically like the inception of awards. I mean, are you suggesting that we rename this the James Woods Award? Well, it's <laughs> funny you should say that because let's do a quick uh, little shallow dive into the recent social media history of James Woods. And this was not set up at all. I wasn't expecting you to say James Woods, but hey, you've led me to the uh, the water. I must drink from it. So James Woods was a recognised Democrat, as in like in the States where you actually register for who you vote for. He then became disenfranchised after the Democrats defending Bill Clinton during his impeachment. He then was independent for the two elections afterwards. And now he's a very vocal Republican. Uh, He's been banned from Twitter numerous times for his remarks made against uh, other Democratic actors and just the Democrats in general. And there were so many concerns about his political viewpoints perhaps you could even say rantings, is that his agents dropped him as a result. And he says basically for that reason exclusively. So he's become a bit of a joke online and I think his career suffered as a result. So, yeah, I mean, he could be both a nominee for this and also um, the new award uh, name. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think he's the... uh the namesake or the new namesake rather and the winner. I mean, he hasn't really been in a uh, widely released uh, live action movie since 2013, um, White House Down. I I remember when I was a kid, James Woods was well known for being like some dude from Mensa. Like he was like the smartest guy in Hollywood. Like he had an IQ of 180. And now, yeah, he's just well known as being a fuckwit. So that's a real shame because God damn it, he was so good in so many movies. Well, to be fair, the awards actually of the actor who squandered their chance from this movie to kick on with bigger roles. So I'm putting this to you. We rename it the James Woods Award, so the fourth name for this particular award, but we put down different nominees. So I'm putting down the nominee for Blade being 
the actor who played Karen in Bush Wright. Mm-hmm. And in Vampires, uh, maybe Cheryl Lee or Daniel Baldwin. Um, but, I mean, James Woods did do a few movies after this. I don't think he kind of squandered his opportunity for this true. particular movie. I would put Cheryl Lee, but for the ultimate winner, it has to be N. Bush, unfortunately. I thought it was actually pretty good in Blade. Yeah, N. Boucher, right. It's interesting. I wonder why, and we probably uh, never know, but, you know, off the back of this, Blade, it was a big, big movie, big hit, but she just did a bunch of TV and then sort of disappeared. Yeah, it's very disappointing. Um, she was in that TV series, Widows, which I think was the one that inspired, I could be wrong, that film uh, adaptation. But she's barely been in anything. I mean, there's a big gap between 2006 and 2018, like 12 years. So maybe she just had family. Totally. And it's as, as simple as that. But, yeah, it's surprising. Like you'd ordinarily ride the coattails of a big film like this to another big film afterwards. So, yeah, surprising. I mean- in 99, she had one episode of Third Watch. In 2000, she was in a film called Three Strikes and then she was in three episodes of TV called, so obviously the guest, called UC Undercover in 2001. Like, she just fell off the radar entirely. So, unfortunately, Anne Boucher uh, gets the, uh, the newly named James Woods Award. Wow. All right, moving on to the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? Ooh, okay. I think the first one is probably the best, Blade. I mean, Wesley. It's got to be Wesley, right? I mean, he's he was he was on a good run, and he's he was on top for a he could he was arguably on was he arguably on top before this? Yeah, he was. I mean, we had White Man Can't Jump, Demolition Man, and so on. Um, yeah, I think this was not his best film in his career, obviously, but he made this character. Wait, wait, what do you mean, obviously? I don't know if that's obvious. <laughs> well, okay. I think he owns the character of Blade and it'll take a lot for uh, who's replacing him? Mahashala Ali. Right. It'll take a lot for Ali to try and get past the legacy of Snipes, I think. Like I actually think there was a probably a window of time, if not for his tax evasion uh, charges and uh, jail time, that, you know, potentially Marvel could have brought him back as just the older version of Blade. Like, I actually think that he is very much looked back on as owning this character. So that's why I'd have him down as a nominee myself for this one. Um, I don't think it's the highlight of his career, but I think he definitely came out on top in that film Blade. Uh, As for vampires, uh, I'd probably put down James Woods. Like, I feel like he knows exactly what sort of film he's in. He's very present on screen. He's thriving being the leading man. And I feel like he's delivering exactly what was expected for him or by him for the director. So I've got it Woods versus Snipes. Snipes versus Woods. Blade versus Jack Crow. Give it to whomever you want. Snipes gets it. Come on. You agree. Okay. All right. There you go. Well done. Yeah. Uh, Wesley, uh, I'm not sure if you didn't sell this award to try and pay off those remaining debts to uh, the uh, the tax man in the States, but if you want, the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award is waiting here for you. Moving on, the Best Dialogue Award. What's your favourite quote, Gabe? Let's start with a pretty quotable movie, Blade. Oh, look, both of these movies have some pretty great one-liners. Fuck, Blade, 
all through high school, I was always saying some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And guess what? That was actually a line that Blade, or I should say Wesley Snipes made off screen when they were making the film. And they actually added it to the script. Oh, really? That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I always loved that bit where Donald Logue said he's going to be naughty, a naughty vampire god. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> uh, anything else? Ah, uh, dude, I could. Um, it's open season on all on all suckheads. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that too. Uh, what about when Whistler turns up and he's like, "Catch you, catch you, fuckers at a bad time." Yeah, oh, that's real. I love that line as well. Yeah, it's very quotable. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones. Which, man, I love it when movies really embrace just doing uh, really fun, great one-liners like that. You know? Yeah, I, and I think Wesley Snipes again, like I mentioned before, about knowing what sort of film you're in. Like Woods in Vampires, he knows how to deliver a line, and he knows the camera's there going to capture it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Any good ones in Vampires that jump out? I don't think it's as quotable, but anything jump out to you? Oh, I mean, I reckon, um, yes, you're right. It's not as quotable, uh, but there's some great interactions. Um, you know, even when Jack Crow is describing vampires, I'll skip to halfway through because he does do a little bit of homophobic shit at the front, but when he's like, um, you know, uh, they're vampires, they're not uh, they're not hopping around in rented formal wear and seducing everybody in sight with cheesy Eurotrash accents. Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. Garlic. You want to try garlic? You could stand there with garlic around your neck and one of these buggers will bend you fucking over and take a walk up your strata chocolata while he's sucking the blood out of your neck. <laughs> that's, that's I don't even good. know what it means. <laughs> yeah, that's good though. I like it. I like it. I like it. Um, that's a good line, but I'm going to give it to Blade. Oh, 100%. It's Blade all Skating us uphill. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, moving on to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Oh, here we go. Okay. Uh, Blade. Look, I've got Stephen Dorff. Uh, <laughs> he is 100%. big. He is so big. He's great. He's great. Um, I mean, I- too big or do you think it suits the role? No, I think I think it feels right for the movie. You know, he's sort of just playing a sort of snarling, smarmy asshole. I think I think he nails it. I love Dorf. Whenever Dorf turns up in a movie, I'm like the um, that Leonardo DiCaprio once upon a time in Hollywood picture meme. I'm like Dorf. There he is. It's Dorf. I love Dorf. <laughs> How about vampires? Uh, I, I, there's quite a few here. I mean, I'd say James Woods is pretty big. I I think there is no scenery left. Everyone is chewing the scenery. Everyone goes big in this movie. It's great. So who gets it? Woods or Dorf? No, let's give it to Dorf just because. Dorf, Dorf power. All right. Moving on to the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Uh, For Blade, I had Chris Christopherson. Why? Well, we hadn't actually seen him in many mainstream films. I mean- What? I think it's fair to say, jump back to 1998, Chris Christopherson appearing in a Marvel R-rated horror action vampire movie as- a Q-like character, Q from James Bond, like the sidekick with gadgets or Alfred from Batman. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve the cash. I just feel this isn't the role that he thinks is going to stretch him as an actor. And there aren't exactly, you know, many scenes on the page. So I reckon this is him having a good time, but definitely there was a, you know, reasonable payday behind it. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Give it to Mr. Christopherson. Oh, no nominees from vampires? <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, 
I don't know. I hope Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa got paid for his one day of filming. I think he was grateful opposed to taking, you know, a paycheck. So Okay, fair, fair. All right, yeah, Chris gets it. All right, moving on. Uh, what have we got next? Oh, the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Uh, all right, who triggered Hey, It's That Guy, Gabe, starting with Blade? I mean, Donald Lug. Yeah. I think he's a classic Hey, It's That Guy. Yo Keir, like we said. He plays Quinn and he appeared in Sons and Anarchies, but also he actually then appeared in like 100 episodes of Gotham, uh, that Batman Origins TV show. So he's always been a lot of, lot of cop movies too, like Law and Order, that sort of thing. But I don't know him from Sons of Anarchy. I think he's great. And I thought he was actually really good in this film as well. Anyone else? Tracy Lords, if you're into pornography. Yes, Tracy Lords. This was the time when she was trying to, I guess, get into mainstream acting. So she appeared in Melrose Place, I think. And she appears in the starting, the opening scene of this movie for a short window. Yep, definitely a nominee. Anyone else or move on to vampires? Ah, well, look, for vampires, I've got a deep, deep cut. All right. Who? Go. Okay. So there's an actor who plays one of James Woods' crew who are killed. His name is Thomas Rosales Jr. He's an actor and a stuntman. And 100%, when you start noticing him in movies, you notice that he's actually in all movies. Interesting. So if you go and have a look, Right now, anyone listening, go Google or IMDb, Thomas Rosales Jr. You just start, he's like the Where's, where's Wally slash Where's Waldo of actor slash stuntmen. Because you might go, oh, look, he's only, uh, has, he only has 178 acting credits on IMDb. But, but he also has 184 stunt credits. He's in every movie. Just, he's just there in the background. There he is. There he, oh, look. Okay. There he is. All right, this is this is going to be a very heavily nominated award because I actually had Mark Byrne Jr. Oh, yeah, great. From Sons of Anarchy. He's killed off quite early, but he's pretty recognisable, even without a beard. He has a face and hair that's been the same for like, like the last 30 years. But I've got a really deep cut that might be even deeper than yours. No, who? Frank Darabont. Featured as the man in the Buick. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. But you don't, you don't, you don't go. Hey, it's that. Like, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Okay. If I said to you, describe to me, Frank. What about what about Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. All right. So, you tell me who you want to put forward as the winner. I'd like to put forward fifty percent of Jack Crow's dead team, because fifty percent are all timers and fifty percent are also Rands. Okay, so it's like the SAG award. We give it to the whole team. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, all right. So it's like a new version on the award. So it's the Stephen Tobolowski's award. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nice. I like it. I like it. Awesome. All right, to the cast of <laughs> vampires. Okay, moving on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, named after the great actor from Get Shorty, Heist and A Life Less Ordinary. Uh, I guess you could see a bit of crossover with the previous award. Let's start with Blade. Uh, for me, I'm putting forward Donald Logue, mentioned before, who played Quinn. Uh, and for Vampires, I'm going to nominate, oh, there aren't many there. Maybe at a stretch, Mark Byrne Jr. again. How about you? Look, I want more Dorf. In all movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Man, I love Dorf. I love when Dorf turns up. Well, Dorf's interesting because he actually has 
had this career that's fluctuated. He starts off on a high in um, what's that movie where he played the kid growing up in Africa? I've just drawn a blank. Oh, uh, the Power, Power of One. One. Yeah, he starts off in that. He was only, I think, 28 or so when he started in Blade, but it felt like he'd been around forever because he'd been a child star, a bit like Christian Bale or Jennifer Lawrence. Like they feel like they've been there forever, but they're still in their 20s. So he then appears in this, then goes into this terrible series of straight video films of the time. Then he kind of came back in Sofia Coppola's Somewhere, which was kind of in the spirit of, you know, one of those choose-your-own-indie-adventure movies like um, Lost in Translation. And I thought, oh, okay, he's got some indie cred, this film played at Venice. And then he again goes back to doing all of these terrible movies. Like there's one film called Break, which I actually don't mind as a concept, where he's basically stuck in a boot, one of those thrillers set in one location where he has to try and escape. And it's a long list of films where he just is playing the same types of chewing scenery character then again, he redeems himself in, I think it was season two or three? Three. Of? True Detective. True Detective. Yeah, exactly. He was great in that too, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I agree. I sort of feel, though, he doesn't make the best choices for the roles he could be in. Well, maybe. I think he, yeah, that's my that's my call anyway. Okay. Well, that's fair. Stephen Dorff gets it. All right, moving on. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake, Gabe, for the most ludicrous name? Can I go first? Uh, sh- should we get some some good but probably not the one that you're going to say out of the way? Go. Okay, we'll throw, throw away. Like Deacon Frost is a cool name for a villain, right? Cool name. Dragonetti. Whistler's a cool name. Dragonetti is a cool name for a villain. Uh, Dragonetti yeah. says this guy is bad. There's uh, no uh, hero in a rom-com called Dragonetti. Yeah, yeah. And over vampires. I mean, Jack Crow. You know, that's Yarn, Yarn Valak. (laughs) But uh, uh, what what have you got? What have you got? Oh, this is the best name. This could potentially be a series winner for the Memphis Reigns Award. It's Heat Seeking Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) So is Heat Seeking Dennis the guy in the opening of Blade who- Yeah. Right. He's the guy who Tracy Lords, the porn star in real life, the sexy girl on screen- pulls to the party and she's a vampire and he's basically being pulled into the party to the rave uh, as basically food, right? Mm-hmm. And he, I think he's got heat-seeking Dennis because on the page he's probably written as the horny guy who thinks he's going to get the chick by going to the rave with her. But I just love the fact that it stayed in the credits as heat-seeking Dennis. It's the best. That's great. And uh, we should uh, remind people heat-seeking Dennis was played by Kenny Johnson who was uh, Curtis Lemansky in The Shield. He's a great actor. I actually quite like him. He's very charismatic on screen. Mm. Well, there you go. Heat-seeking Dennis. He'll never top it. How about uh, vampires? James Woods plays Jack Crow. It's a cool name. Is that a bit on the nose? No, it's a good name. You mean JC? Oh, I see what you're doing there. Very clever. I don't know. I think heat-seeking Dennis, you know, surely has to trump Jack Crow, right? It Look, it's heat-seeking Dennis all the way. Done. All right. The Memento Award name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Starting with Blade, it was the uh, incest vibe with Blade's mum. I had no recollection of that at all and I couldn't believe how long it went for. So that surprised me on rewatch. And I'd never seen vampires before, so I'm an NA on that one. Who are your nominees? Look, I've I've seen these movies too many times to really uh, remember fresh anything from them. 
So I don't know. Maybe this this award this week is something of a bust. Uh, I'm going to go with my sexy times one with Blade's mum. So oh, you yeah, know, okay, fine, fine. Yes, yes, yes. It gets it. That gets it by default. It's very, very of the now. Blade was not only ahead of its time with um, uh, comic book superhero movies, but it rightly predicted the rampant popularity of incest porn. Oh wow! <laughs> Awful. All right, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard which inspired the film Under Siege with uh, Mr. Ponytail himself, Steven Seagal. So if imitation is the ultimate form of flattery, did either of these films inspire any other superhero or action horror movies with a Daywalker-type character, Gabe? Do you think that Blade, which you know came out in 1998, had any sort of influence on the look and style of The Matrix? Or do you think The Matrix had already been written and was well underway? Because there's a few, you know, not apart from just the sort of leather-clad outfit, but even stuff like, you know, the sequence where Dorf is outside holding the little girl as a hostage and Blade shoots at him and they do that slow-mo shot of the bullet going past him. It's a bit cheesy looking and obviously it doesn't have the technical sophistication or amazingness of bullet time, but... I always wondered, what do you think? Do you think do you think the Wachowskis were ever watching Blade and went, you know, oh, we'd originally designed, designed Neo wearing sweaters, but now let's give him a leather duster? Yeah, I think that's just coincidence because you're right. That scene where the bullets are in front of Stephen Dorff's character, it's a little bit bullet time-esque, but I think there was actually a music video that was made before both these films that used a similar type of effect. And oh, do you mean the corn, the corn music video? Yeah, where the bullets going through like various things. Ah, that music video ruled. Is that by Chris Cunningham? I don't know. I'm not sure if it is, but but anyway, like I think so that effect itself, I think was or had already been explored in some capacity. And basically, as is all these things, there's an iteration after iteration, and someone gets the better version of it. And I think that particular effect stood on the shoulders of early attempts, right. which didn't have the benefit of the same CG. And to be frank, didn't have the same awesome vision of the Wachowskis. Uh, I think, too, from what I read about the making of The Matrix, they'd pretty heavily storyboarded that film and done all their concept drawings and stuff for about three or four years before to try and instill confidence in them as directors. So I think it's just coincidence. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, it's come to uh, that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which uh, had the opportunity to do a sequel about a runaway bus and instead did a film about a runaway sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. We have an opportunity to make a sequel to Blade or Vampires. They're both classic horror action movies about a vampire hunter who becomes the hunted when he becomes a sacrifice and a ritual to allow vampires to walk in sunlight and become invulnerable. There's a studio executive. He's across the table from us. Gabe, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Go. Well, I suppose we should note that both of these movies already have sequels and that the sequel to Blade 2 is a pretty, pretty, pretty great film. So I don't know, should we... Should we touch Blade for a sequel, even though it was the much more successful movie? Are we going to be trying to retcon Guillermo del Toro's effort? Well, I guess Blade has the Marvel property uh, cachet. It was more successful financially than John Carpenter's Vampires. It had actors that you'd want to cast now 
uh, which would still be popular. I think, unfortunately, James Wood's popularity has dipped and he's the most famous thing besides John Carpenter about that film. So I think it's got to be Blade. The question is, do we do a fourth Blade movie and pick it up after Blade Trinity? Do we rewrite the reboot that actually is in the works right now? Or do we do a multiverse spin-off in our fictional mind? It's a bit like Mad Max Fury Road. You know, different actor. It's it's uncertain as to when it happens in the timeline. Okay. Should we just go for a – should we do a spiritual sequel to Blade that could be Blade 4 without being origin story, mm-hmm. which Marvel may or may not decide to use for us? Okay. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you bring up Fury Road because, you know, Blade 2 sort of was able to – escalate Blade's concept by having Blade need to join with the vampires to fight a worse breed of vampires. And then Blade 3, I guess, tried to top it again with Dracula, but that was a turkey. I'd be interested to see a movie which was set maybe, you know, in the future where the vampires had been able to uh, become able to walk during the daylight and had taken over the world to some extent and sort of flipped the the current Blade universe so that humans were a scarcity and the battle against the vampires was one that had been lost by the humans and Blade was somehow prowling the post-apocalyptic vampire wasteland as it was. What do you think of that? Yeah, I like that because there's always an issue you have with credibility as to in this fictional world, would the audience believe that, you know, um, vampires would actually still be a secret. Like, frankly, it's just unlikely. And TV shows like True Blood have just accepted that they're an integrated part of society. What you're describing is probably something in the vein of that film Daybreakers by the Spearig Brothers, where the humans are in that film The Hunted. The vampires basically use them like cattle and they have like these huge uh, sort of factory farms full of humans which they drain for their blood. So I guess, have you just described Daybreakers or what spin can we bring to it that takes some of those elements of Daybreakers and elevates it within the superhero action horror genre with Blade? Well, well, I think you're you're right. However, I suppose Daybreakers presents a very... uh, uh, Dystopian? Well, yes, but the vampire society is one that, apart from them potentially running out of blood stocks, is very well organised. I suppose I'm suggesting more of a post-apocalyptic vibe. Um, You said Mad Max Fury Road earlier. You know, something more like there was a human-vampire war that, uh, that... that created insurmountable destruction. So I'm pitching something closer to the film Priest. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I like it. Okay, okay. Well, here's the thing. Apparently in one of the sequels to Blade, the issue is going to be addressed as to what is the sustainable future for vampires because you can't just go ahead and start killing all humans. Uh, Like, for example, if humans now actually ate cows as they do in those movies – It'd be like one bite and you throw them away. It's not the best use of actually enjoying the loin, the leg, the calf, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay, right, right. It's not the most efficient way of, cons- of consuming your, you know, your food source. 
So apparently there was going to be some sort of talk in one of those Blade sequels where you'd actually address this. Now, I actually think that Daybreakers by the Spirit Brothers does that. And it's very much Matrix-esque where you see all these humans hanging and being sucked of their blood, um, which is basically, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a chicken or meat factory farm meets the Matrix scene, right? Where we see Keanu hooked up and all those humans being sucked for their energy. So I guess your idea of a post-apocalyptic dystopia is kind of cool because they wouldn't have the organisation to have those factory blood farms at all. So if they find you, they're probably not going to take you home and tie you up. They're just going to basically kill you on the spot, suck you dry. That's the desperation of it, right? Mm. So what we're talking about is basically Daybreakers meets Priest meets Mad Max Fury Road meets Blade. Is that it? Is that our movie? That's a basic concept? I would say so, yeah. And our heroes on the road... He's human and he's a half-human, half-vampire, still Blade, and he's trying to find his way and kill vampires in this landscape. Is he going, is he just basically going out and hunting by day and return to his place at night? Or is he like Mad Max? He's sort of like travelling. It's like the road (laughs) or Book of Eli. He's passing through and it's like a Western-style post-apocalyptic vampire film. Oh, that's cool. I mean, you know, uh, Wesley Snipes was trying to get a really uh, sort of like a kung fu style into Blade. What if, you know, you continued that sort of trend of of, of sort of the the Asian influence and he's, you know, he's got that sort of lone wanderer samurai town to town. You know, maybe he's trying to atone for the fact that he was the one thing standing between the vampires and total domination, and he's failed. So he's failed, and now what he's doing is just passing through. He's plucking off vampires as he goes, but it's really more about him surviving than taking down the vampires because there's no water around. He doesn't have his serum in the same way. Maybe he has to go like pass from town to town try and find stray dogs or cattle to suck their blood, which is like the equivalent of basically eating out of a dumpster. He has the sword, so he's totally already hooked into that aesthetic and the, you know, the filmic cinematic tradition of the wandering samurai. Okay, so he comes to a town. Does he come to a town that's a bit like um, uh, Unforgiven where, you know, they're, they're doing their last stand and they need him? Totally, and it's got a really obvious name, like it's called the the town of redemption. There, that's right, <laughs> blood redemption. <laughs> you know, like something thunderously stupid. Uh, I mean, the other way you could go is you could take a bite, as it were, out of Blade 2 and you could start with some other group of people who, you know, 20 years after the vampire apocalypse have gone looking for Blade, who's completely given up himself and he's actually reverted to his more vampiric side and they need to convince him to come back. Oh, I like that. So basically a group of hunters go out, or cowboys and so on, it's like a post-apocalyptic Western, they go out because their town's under threat and he's their last attempt. And he lives as a legend, perhaps sort of in the hilltops, you know, 10 kilometres away or something like that, right? That's right. And they track him down and you think up to this, this point in the film, perhaps maybe they're tracking to kill him and he has reverted to his more vampiric state. They lure him out, they capture him, and then they say, we want you to work for us. And, if, and initially he's kind of like a, a captive dog. But then they both learn to trust each other, give him blood, 
let him out of the cage, and then essentially he then then leads them a bit like the uneasy alliance we see in Blade Two. I like that. So then, what's our kind of who are our villains? Do we have basically like a Deacon Frost like character from Blade One, or some sort of like action hero like that guy from Blade Two from was he from Bros? <laughs> was he Bros? Yeah, he was Bros. Um, he was Bros. Yeah. Do we have basically another gang coming into town, or is it a case that the town's already been taken over by that gang, and so our guys sort of break into it's like a heist back into the town to kill off all of these various rogue vampire cowboys and reclaim the town? Yeah, I mean, maybe we take a page, as it were, out of John Carpenter's book and just sort of. Uh, try and rip off a classic Western, like we just lift the plot of A Fistful of Dollars or Rio Bravo and, you know, have it like a town besieged or, you know, by this vampire threat. Maybe it's the last outpost, you know, this town is the last town. So how about this? We start off with a town that's something like the town between Unforgiven but maybe also elements of Barter Town from Mad Max 3, Beyond Thunderdome, right? Not Nice. Okay, it does trade and so on. It's run by a Tina Turner-like figure. A group of vampire cowboys come in, overtake the town, and it collapses. And it's like the last point of civilization in this a post-apocalyptic landscape, right? But before everyone's killed off or captured, because obviously what these vampires want to do is throw all these humans in the jail of the town to feed off them mm-hmm. like cattle. Sure. But before they do... One of our plucky heroes, maybe a teenager and a few others, escape out the, the metaphorical back door of the town and realise they can't reclaim the town their own right. So they have to make an e- uneasier light. First of all, they've got to try and find this mythical Blade character who they've known since they were kids is a legend that lives beyond the hilltops. They've got to, first of all, find out if this legend is true by finding him, then capture him then try and trust him, he's to trust them, then bring him back to full strength. Then basically they've got to work out a way to do a reverse heist or an assault on Precinct 13 as a nice little tip of the hat mm-hmm. to John Carpenter's assault on Precinct 13 mm-hmm. to reclaim the town. And then we can bring in a bit of steampunk tech like perhaps the machine gun crossbow, if you will. And at the, the end of the film, they reclaim the town Blade has to be the person that actually kills the lead vampire cowboy. And at the end, they say, stay, Blade. Now you can be part of this town. You've earned that right. But he decides to take some supplies like Mad Max at the end of Thunderdome or the end of, um, what's the fourth? Fury Road and just walk into the to the uh, desert, to the horizon. Yeah, totally. What do you think? I'd watch then, I'd watch like four more of those after that where it's just Blade fucking shit up in the post-apocalypse, yeah. In fact, Gabe, we could actually even pitch this as a non-Blade film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but I want Wesley. Oh, okay. You want the older? Actually, this is perfect too because we actually use the older Wesley, the one who's got a little bit soft and has lost his six-pack and is a bit more grizzled and disenchanted and take all that energy and put it on screen. Hey, look, if we uh, if Wesley will only do one, we could just also rip off, what was that Wolverine movie where he finally got 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 killed? 
Logan. Logan. Nice. You know, you make it like Old Man Blade. Nice. Okay. You know. What's the title for our Old Man Blade reboot slash sequel? Uh, Old Man Blade. Old Man Blade. Well, I think the original comic book for Logan was Old Man Logan, so we could do that. <laughs> well, there you go. Let's just do that then. How about a, a Fistful of Fangs? Oh, nice. Okay. I like that. Huh? All right. No, no, that's good. <laughs> we'll do that because that, 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 that beautifully pays homage to the Westerns we're ripping off and the Samurai films we're ripping off. So I like it. Done. A Fistful of Fangs, and that's here make a sequel to the Wesley Snipes film Blade. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good as always. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week on social media? I guess Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Awesome. Check out Gabe there. He is hilarious. And also check him out on IMDb as well for links to some of these great TV shows he's been working on. Um, I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find my podcasts there, including Twin Movies, and also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you love the show. If you did, please share it with your mates and uh, spread the good word. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs>